Thank you guys so much for tuning in to today's podcast. I've got a special guest for us today, Marty Jemison, who was a seven-year professional and two-time national champion. He won both the amateur national championships here for the United States, and then he won the professional uh, championship in uh, 1999. For those of you that are cycling geeks like myself, uh, in Philadelphia, a race that uh, d- doesn't exist anymore, but it, it sure did back in the day. And there were some good heated battles on on that course. And so just happy to have him on here. And we're going to kind of kick it around a little bit and talk some cycling. So here we go. Marty, thank you so much for being on the podcast. You're welcome. Well, let's um, let's jump right into it. Marty, seven year professional uh, ran from 93. Correct. Uh-huh. Um. 94 is the, is uh, the first year with word perfect. Okay. 94 with, uh, with word perfect and, uh, and ran all the way through to 2000. 2000. Correct. All right. Well, let's, let's talk before that. I mean, how did you, how did you get into cycling? What drew you to the sport? Where are you from? Uh, just anything like that. Um, from Salt Lake city, but not of Salt Lake city. Uh, that's in Utah. And yep. I think I think I honestly like to believe and think in my head that I was born with cycling in my blood. I, and I think it started back from even, you know, being not even five years old or, you know, dreaming and wanting that, you know, that bike that we had our eyes on in a store window or when we saw maybe a peer, a peer, somebody older than us riding the bike that you dreamed about. So I think it started that far back and and that far back. Of course, I didn't know anything about bike racing or anything. I just simply wanted a bike. So I think just bike, just any type of riding a bike was, I think, been in my blood from the early, early years. Yeah. So uh, did you did you participate in any other sports growing up or like was it exclusively as soon as you just got on the bike? It was like what you you just knew that was just what you were going to do. Well, it's it's interesting. I think I think I share. I mean, I think I've heard some of my compatriots or other other pro riders or other you know avid cyclists kind of say the same thing you know I grew up in the United States and I did play ball sports but I you know I was I was average maybe better than average but never never much better than that never I never quite excelled so yes I played a lot of baseball I played I remember playing on two different teams one year so I, I was I was literally I played so many games you can't even imagine in one season because I was on two teams at once. Um, <laughs> basketball um, in high in high school though. So this that was pr- prior to high school. In high school, I played soccer, but I think you know, kind of between before high school and after high school, you know, I was using I was skateboarding a lot, and it was in high school when I first bought my own bike, uh, a bike that I wanted, a, a dream bike. Um, so then I think, I think I started gravitating to those, um, and also I'll throw in snowboarding and skiing. So I started finding out that I was better at focusing on something. You just, you know, you, I guess you, you do it yourself. It's kind of a solo. Those are solo sports. The other ones I mentioned, um, skateboarding, snowboarding, riding a bike, and just discovering that, you know, the ball sports, although I liked them and loved them, I just, I didn't excel to the, to the upper echelon. Do you feel like you were maybe drawn to those, like you said, kind of more individual sports just because it's more of like an N equals one in terms of there's, there's a lot less out there that is not under your control, right? Do you feel like that was maybe something that drew you to it? Yeah. I, you know, I think there is something there and you said something about the control. And I think, I think it's, you can spend so many more hours focusing on your skill set in the in the in the events that are you know not not ball related and i think you know to give credit to those that have become professionals in ball sports i think they figured it out and you know i think they were able to hone their skills in 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 a way where they just spent so 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 much more time with it and i think you know i think for some of us that didn't make it to that level you know you waste a lot of time in those ball sports yeah yeah so when did you you know, you're talking about high school, you, you get the bike and you're, you're just in love with it. When did you start thinking to yourself, you know, I, I really just want to go full, full go on this. And, and I really would aspire to be a professional cyclist. When would you say that that moment kind of came about? Um, so when I first got a bike in high school, you know, I wanted a bike more than a car. Um, that's, I think that's an important point. Like I saved my money <laughs> for the bike. 
not the car. I didn't care what the car was. The car got me from A to B, but the bike is what I truly wanted. So it was, that's where I spent, you know, more money uh, than I did on a car. Um, but the bike then, um, you have to know, that was probably, that was the early 80s. And I had never, I'd never, ever seen a bike race. I never heard of a bike race, had never heard of the Tour de France. So that would have been like 1981, 1982. Um, so the bike for me was for commuting. And the first bike I had was um, a, a touring bike. So it was important for me to have a rack on it and just be able to go on day trips, you know, as far, you know, as far as I could travel to and from in a day, which they weren't tremendously long distances, but for a young, for somebody in high school, or, um, it was pretty long for me or just going up in the canyons and just uh-huh. wait, that was, that was what the bike was for me at that point. Um, but I did meet somebody who I ended up doing some riding with who said I was strong and said that I should check out racing. Uh, I, I did go out and see what he was talking about. And I saw a local parking lot racing, um, in Utah at the time, Salt Lake City at the time had a very, very small contingent of like, it seemed like loyal bike racers, um, kind of a cult following. And, but as I discovered as years went on, they were very serious about it and they were very skilled and very good. So that's, that's, uh, I think I watched two races as a spectator and then I jumped in. Awesome. Awesome. And what was it? You know, because in the in the early '80s, right? Uh, what was it? You're you're young. You're you're in high school, and all of a sudden, you know, football and and baseball and basketball and all these other easily more popular sports than cycling. What was it like navigating that with maybe like some of your friends and just having conversations with people like, hey, the cycling thing is what I do, and just being that age where they're into other kind of quote unquote cooler things and you're taking day trips and you're riding your bike all day and they're on a basketball court or they're on a baseball diamond. Yeah. You know, I think, you know, I think it was just kind of an organic, it was just an organic transition. It's something, you know, it it was, I mean, I, I personally, I jumped in full, you know, I was, I was committed to it, but it's just, I think it's the same as anybody picking up any interest that you may or may not know about. Your friends have interests that you may or may not know about unless they're really, really close friends. So I just I just jumped in organically and started improving over the years um, before, you know, before others took notice. Yeah. So one of the things that I've heard you mention on, you know, another uh, podcast that you were on was you said you would put in about 20,000 miles a year. Is that correct? Um, it's yes, it is. And it was actually it was it was always just over 20,000. So between 20 and 21 and maybe maybe I got close to 22,000 and that was over like a 10 to 12 year period. So I could, I kept very, very accurate um, mileage um, records and always actually underestimated every single day that I rode. So I never rounded up ever. I always actually would round down. So it was easily over 20,000 for like almost 12 years. Wow. And what was, I mean, what was your training like back then? Is it, you know, now all we hear about, you know, the power meters and and all these workouts and just a very, very scientific, very um, meticulous approach, which you, you had in terms of logging mileage, but what was, what was some of the training that you would do? So, you know, I think, I think to keep the conversation on the short side, I would say, I was more of like the Eddie Merckx philosophy, which was ride more, race more. I mean, it's, it's that simple. And it's going away from the polarization of what you're saying, what you might be pointing to today, where there's, there's so much um, emphasis on the intervals and just and power work. Um, I did, honest to God, I did very few, very few, almost none, almost zero intervals out of my training days where it was, you know, structured where I would, you know, you know, it's stop and go um, during a set distance over a set course for an interval. Uh, my, my intervals, I guess, would have been very, very organic. You know, if you're doing a 100-mile ride, um, I would choose the route kind of by what kind of workload I wanted that day, which climbs came during what period of during that, that 100 miles, and then going over, like, the tops of those, you know, if it was rolling hills or mountains. You know, my, my, my intervals were – they were real and they were organic, but you would roll them out on certain 
climbs to get to just dig dig deep into your you know into what you are capable of producing so yeah they were just very very organic you know and and, and you know i did listen to one of your po- your nine minute podcasts on um test um or test uh, uh training score tss oh yeah uh-huh your training or was it training stress score? training stress score yeah the tss yeah. challenge i just finished doing yep uh-huh so you know and I, I find it kind of funny because you know I mean, I was friends. I, I knew Dirk Friel. We did some racing together as a pro in Belgium. He was on a, like a very small Belgian pro team, and I knew his. I knew his father only by you know being introduced to him a few times um, early earlier on. But you know, they were in the process of writing some of those books and creating the software. But really, it was kind of annoying because they they were around us asking us questions about what we did, what was our training. And then it seems like they they took a lot of what we said and then implemented it into their books and software. Um, but, you know, to their credit, I think there's a lot of good stuff there. Uh, on the other hand, I, you know, I just I just go back to what I did. I think they were very organic, just digging deep into my soul and, or into what my body was capable of and just throwing down at certain times during during certain rides, at, you know, at certain points. So just very, yeah. very organic very organic ways of calling what I did um, interval training. Would you, Marty, would you say that compared to, and again, maybe you don't know the answer to this question, but compared to your peers, compared to your teammates and, and your, the, the folks that you were competing against, would you say that that 20,000 was, was more than a lot of those guys were doing less? Like, where would you say that that was, where would you say you kind of were in terms of training volume? I would say it was, it was probably you'd probably you'd probably line it up very very closely to the top you know top 100 guys in the world for sure and there's going to be you know there's going to be a certain group of guys that are going to be that were doing more and then there's going to be a handful that did less and i think and i think i you know i think over time like i've talked to a couple of my teammates and a few other people and they might have gone from years of doing you know, 20, 21,000, maybe even 22,000 in the year. And they actually drop back down to like maybe 18 or 19,000. But you have to, but what I think, and I look back at is they already had several years in a row where it may have been 20,000 or more. And then they were able to back off a little bit and then be, um, and then look at their training and try to be more specific and do some of the things that you're familiar with more of target, target workouts with, certain intervals etc cetera, etc cetera. and i think i think that became very successful for them and i also think it made sense after they already had a, a big base of several years of just being having higher mileage sure sure well the reason why you know the, the reason why i'm asking that question is because with you going 10 years doing 20 to 21000 miles a year um you know people often forget you know interval sessions are great but cycling is an aerobic sport. I mean, we're talking about taking on, you know, I'm looking at some of the races you've done. We'll talk about it in a second, but like Liege, Baston Liege, yep. that's an aerobic race. You're not going to hit, you know, I mean, you're doing, you know, 270 kilometers. Like it, it, there's a huge aerobic component to that. So you just built up, you were able to do so much riding volume wise that, you can do all the intervals you want, but if you don't have the aerobic base and you go anaerobic before the next guy, then that, that guy is going to be able to beat you in a bike race, regardless of whether the fact you've done these nice, you know, intervals. Exactly. Exactly. And, and the other thing to underline here is obviously you had a very successful career and you achieved some noteworthy results. And so, you know, the other thing is uh, understanding what works for you and just doing what works for you and what you feel is going to put you in the position to be successful. So, um, but, uh, yeah, so let's, uh, let's jump into, uh, some of the racing. So you professional in 1994, um, talk about how you got on. Cause I think it's a really awesome story. Talk about how you got on word perfect, well, which was your first professional yeah, team. So the year before, so 1993, I won the U S uh, the U S amateur national championships at, on the road. Um, so I was carrying the red, white, and blue Jersey. Um, it was my third, the third year that I'd also been um, actually f- fourth year. So the fourth year that I'd been racing in France and I was also the, my, the, in 1993, I split my time from a racing on a French team. I spent a little bit of time racing with a Canadian team. And I also spent time racing with the U S national team to certain events. 
So, um, I, and I'd also, um, that lot, that, that year prior to turning professional, I had, uh, I think I had t- uh, 10 wins around the world, uh, mostly, mostly with the French team and the Canadian team. And I also had 52 top 10 finishes. So it was a year that I was just absolutely flying. Um, and, and wherever we went around the world, I was, you know, I was winning or, or I was in the, in the top 10. Um, and then I won the U S national championships and I actually just, I back then, back in those days, you had to send, you know, faxes. We didn't have the internet the way we have today. So via faxes, I was, you know, sending faxes. Honestly, I focused on word perfect and I didn't even, I didn't even talk. I think I talked to maybe two or three other teams, but I really focused on word perfect because I was from Utah and word perfect is what the corporation is in Utah. So I just, I told them, I just, I just told them that they needed to have me on the team as, because I was an American, I was U.S. <laughs> champion and the, and the company was from my hometown. And I just, I just kept hammering them. And then uh, finally somebody said, yes. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a great story. If there's any young aspiring, you know, professional cyclists or athletes for that matter, Um, you know, I think that's a, that's a great story that you share because it really goes to show that you obviously had some ability. I mean, I'm not, not taking that away from you. You had your 10 wins, you had 52 top tens, but you also did your homework and you also marketed yourself very well to word perfect. You, you said, Hey, you know what this they're from my hometown. I'm national champion. You know, I, I, I can see what they're trying to do in terms of maybe a marketing strategy and how they can use me because I think that that, that kind of uh, thing is, is important, right? It's not always just about your physiological capabilities, but it's also a lot about your character and the way that you carry yourself off the bike as well. So I just think that's a, that's a, you know, wonderful story that you're able to share there, but I, I skipped over something that I do want to talk about because I think it's also important for, you know, anybody who's especially trying to cut their teeth in, in professional cycling. You went to, you went to France. So you, you, you know, you're from the United States, right. And you're kind of, you know, doing cycling thing over here in the United States, but what made you want to go to France to go, to go race? Um, I have to back up just uh, maybe six months before I went. I did, okay. I did a Great. race in Utah at the end of the year called um, Logan to Jackson. It's a, it's a, it's a 203 mile race from Logan, Utah to Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and I won that race. And there was a man, a gentleman there who was in charge of the, I think it was the U23 team for the for the U.S. Federation back in those years. And he, you know, I'm I was obviously older than 23, so I couldn't race on his team. Um, I think I was I think I was 25 at the time. And so he recommended or what he had, he had a recommendation for me that um, he knew that the Federation had an invitation to go race in the Dominican Republic, but they were not going to send the national team. He also knew that the promoter really wanted Americans down there and was willing to put together a composite American team. And all I really, all I had to do was get to New York city and the promoter was paying for the airplane tickets from New York city down to the Dominican Republic and so I, I, I took, I jumped on that um, opportunity um, and I met my teammates in uh, New York City. So five of us, five Americans or five of us that, you know, met in New York City, went to the Dominican Republic and we, we won that race. And my teammate that was there, the, my new teammate that I didn't know, you know, a week before that, um, he had been racing in Europe and he, I think he had dual citizenship. And um, he was familiar with racing in France and he was the contact um, that had the information um, to get to France and just told me how it worked. But he didn't he didn't do much more than that. So getting to France, um, um, you know, was something I had to do on my own. Um, But I just I just got on a plane and went to France. Man, that's awesome. That's awesome. And how how was that? Was that. Was it eye-opening at first to kind of see the difference in the level? I mean, everybody says if you want to make it, you need to go to Europe, and, and that's where you need to go and get some race reps and things like that because it's just the racing over there is, is that much different than it is in the United States. I mean, is that, is that accurate? Is that what you found in your Absolutely. experience? It was, it was eye-opening. Um, back in 1990, you know, in France, in the countryside, nobody spoke English, so – the culture shock was more than you can imagine. It's not the experience a rider would have today because with English, with internet and the things we have available today would be much easier. 
Um, so, you know, 90, 99% of Americans or, or even any of the foreigners that, that did what I did by going to France, they didn't last very long and they, and they raced back home because it, it's, it was very, very difficult. The culture shock was very difficult. But for me, it was it just, I, for some reason, I had the right, you know, it was just the right kind of person that I just thrived on it. It was a place where, you know, it's kind of a monk lifestyle where I could just really focus on my craft. So for me, it was the culture shock or being isolated was something I embraced because again, just I, it's where I could work on my craft. Awesome. Yeah, no, that's, that's good. I mean, I was going to, I was going to ask you because um, to even, even nowadays it, it's not as, as tough, I would say, because you're right. We definitely do have inroads now and we do have infrastructure uh, over there in Europe that, you know, uh, you know, young people want to go over there and they want to race and we've got contacts over there and things of that nature to make it a lot easier for them. Uh, but even still, uh, you know, there's quite a few that go over there and they come back because, well, nowadays it's different. If, if there's not Wi-Fi, then they, they have trouble making it. But back then it was, you know, a language barrier, not having a family. Um, you mentioned Chan McRae in, in, in one of the other podcasts you were on. So I remember Chan talking about like he didn't have a he didn't have a TV you know, and it was like the worst that, you know, it was like really hard at first. And, and so it's, it's, um, it's difficult to make it over there. And that's what I was going to ask is how did you, how'd you do it? Right. Because you're seeing, it's kind of one of those that you're okay. You know, there's other Americans here, but then you're hearing that they're going home and it just, it almost makes it that much easier for you to get on a plane and go back home. But you mentioned that the motivation was just there you knew where you were, you knew that's where you needed to be. And you figured, Hey, this is the best place for me to kind of hone in on my skills and, and, and get this done somewhere where I can't, I can't get it done back home. Right. You know, that's exactly. it. And I think it, it being thrown into that environment, I think real quickly, you find out whether you have what it takes to be a professional cyclist. Um, because, you know, if you think if you need TV or if you need some of those comforts, you're not going to make it as a pro, period, because the life of a pro isn't just it's not it's not what you see in a magazine. I mean, it's it, the lifestyle is very hard. It is very lonely. You're all alone um, and you have a lot of people battling against you. It's not an easy it's not an easy life. It's a very, very difficult life. So if you can't handle the culture shock or if you need the comforts of Internet or TV, um, then you're not going to make it, you know? So, you know, it's just, it was kind of back in the days where you just, you know, you read magazines or read a book, you know, you didn't, or you listened to the radio. Um, but honestly, I just remember being so focused and so busy, frankly, because of training, re rest, recovery, eating and traveling to and from races that it, it was a full life. Yeah. I was going to ask you about that. Can you, can you tell us, you know, how many race days a year did you average? Um, like in so the season? Not the first year because that was like a five month kind of introduction. But by the time, by the second year that I was in France, I was racing 90 to 95 days a year. And I want to, I want to tell you what a race is a race. There isn't a single race that I did out of that 90 or 95 that was under 120 kilometers. So the races we were doing were between 120 to 167 kilometers 167 kilometers is is 100 miles so we were basically doing 80 to 100 mile races and i was doing that three days a week yeah three days a week and i'm going to ask the question even though i already know the answer for those folks that are listening and if the race was close enough you would likely sometimes ride to the race and then ride back home yes. wouldn't you and, and I think you might, you might've heard me talking about that. That was, um, I didn't do that. At, I did that a few times when I was an amateur, but I think the, the races tended to be a little bit further away, but, um, I did it several times in my first year as a pro, um, with word perfect. Um, and that way I was able to get 300 kilometer days. So I had that first year with word perfect going to and from the care messes, you know, I had, I bet I had six or eight days that were 300 K. Yeah. So I've, um, I had my first experience going to Belgium last year and, and, and doing that and did a, did quite a few kermesses out there and just had my eyes open to, uh, to a whole new world. And that was just a common thing that I saw. I mean, we, 
we took a van to these races because it was my first time being out there. But, you know, you see a lot of guys, they had the backpacks on and they're riding to the race and then they'd race and then they'd ride back. And it was just very businesslike. As you said, it was just very businesslike. And by the time you train for the day or race for the day, you eat, you do some recovery things. I mean, it's, it's time for bed because the alarm clock goes off the next morning pretty early and you got to, you got to do it all over again. So there really isn't a whole lot of room for, you know, for anything else other than, like you said, you're, you're a professional. This is your job and this is what you do. It's not, uh, it's not always fun and games, but it is worth it, you know, uh, on, on certain days. Right. Um, absolutely. And then, and, and, and yeah, fun and games are worth it. Like, um, you have to be committed to it. So I don't, I think, you know, yeah, the, it does, I don't even think about the fun and games or if, if, if it's worth it, you're just, you're committed or you're not. Yeah. Okay. Let's man. Uh, I see some races in here that I want to ask you about that you've done. So as I mentioned earlier, you've done Liège, uh, you've got a Perry Roubaix on here, uh, which, how many times did you do Perry Roubaix? I think I did Perry Roubaix three times, and I um, I made it to the velodrome, so I finished once. And uh, the the other two times, um, you know, you're I was a worker. I mean, very specific yeah. role, and that that race has two feed zones. So my role was basically when you get to the second feed zone, they the pressure to get in the cars and get, at that point is pretty heavily, it's pretty high, and at that point, then it's like maybe the top. 30 to 50 guys are sent onto the velodrome. But in the old days, they'd kind of just, the teams would just pull you at that second feed zone. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, you've got, you've got the Ronde on here, you know, Von Vlander, and you've got Flan, you know, otherwise known as Flanders yep. on here. Uh, you've just got some, so yeah, in terms of, and it looks to me, it looks to me from what I'm seeing here, you can correct me if I'm wrong. It looks to me like you were a guy that was, pretty heavily leaned on for the classics. Is that, is that accurate? Like it looks like every year, pretty much you would yep. do, you did Flanders quite a few times and you've got Liege in here quite a few times. You did Roubaix three times. Is that, or, or was it just, that's the way that it was back in the day. Y'all just did everything. So you're, you're picking up you're, you're if you dig a little bit deeper, you'll see. And that, you know, it was kind of, it, I kind of developed into and, and, and management made, you know, they'd make comments about me and I'm not sure I even liked it, but uh, I heard comments where, oh, Marty, he, he, he's good from February to October and he can finish everything. He can do everything. <laughs> so it's kind of <laughs> like, you know, it kind of goes in with that super high volume of training I was doing. I was very consistent, very healthy throughout the year. Um, and I was solid from February until October. And, and, and frankly, by the end of by the end of October, I fell apart and I had to patch myself up until February. But I could do that um, for better or worse, because. You know, there might, I might have a teammate that I might be sharing a room with that didn't didn't have couldn't quite do February to October, but maybe that roommate could fly during one of the months, and you know, you know, fly meaning get big results during one part of the year, and maybe not do as well in some of the other months. And you know, that's that's another kind of rider. Yeah, yeah. I mean, with all the mileage that, with all the volume that you were doing, I mean, you were built to just you were built to last. Right. I mean, you were able to just sustain a, a, a high level for uh, yeah. for a long time. Can, man, I, I got to ask you because I'm just I'm in love with it. Can you talk about like what what were your experiences like in Flanders? Like what is all of that like? Or can you just your favorite, maybe one of the classics? I'm just focusing, I guess, on the classics. It can be an Ardennes or it can be, you know, a cobbled classic. It doesn't matter if you want to pick one of each. That'd be awesome, too. So. Um, I prefer Liège, Bastion Liège because the climbs are a little bit longer, um, and, and they're not paved. So I'm actually more suited to Liège, Bastion Liège. I think my best place there was 19th one year. Um, it might've been, actually it was 18th. I took 18th one year. Um, and then Flanders, I actually, I mean, I like Flanders over Roubaix because of the cobbled climbs and I'm more suited for the, the climbs on cobbles versus the faster um, flat sections of Perry Roubaix. Roubaix is where I don't shine and wouldn't shine because just the super high speeds over the cobbles, um, just my disposition or the way I'm built as a cyclist, I'm better, I'm better for the climbs. I'm a, I was actually a big guy. So like if, if you looked at me visually, you might say, oh, you'd pick me for like a flat Perry Roubaix. But honestly, I, the way my, bio, my, by my, my personal biomechanics work, 
um, as a big guy was better on the climbs. Yeah. Yeah, man. That's, I mean, I can, I can only imagine, you know, doing some of those races and, and pulling a top, you know, pulling a top 20 at, uh, at Liège is, is pretty spectacular. Um, you did the tour a couple yeah. times, Two correct? Times. And, um, can you take us back to, I don't know exactly what stage it was, but one year it's it, the way it reads is you were in the day long breakaway that made it to the line and you pulled off a fifth on one of those stages. Can you take us back to that day and kind of tell us how that all, un all unfolded? Yeah, it was. Um, so it was the second year I did the Tour de France. It was 1998 and it was the stage between we were between the mountains, between the Pyrenees and right before we got to the Alps. And the stage was a, it finished in Carpentras which is uh, right close. It was close to Mont Ventoux, but it's, um, it was, so it was a very kind of very long and hilly race with, we went over the, a little climb uh, before the finish line called the Col de Mures, M-U-R-S. Um, I think this stage, I think we've got away with, it was high teens, like 16 to 18 riders. So it's one of those stages where 16 to 18 riders get away and the Peloton just kind of, they just kind of, I mean, they're rolling. It's, it's rolling pretty fast, but it's kind of a, it would be kind of a sleepy day inside the Peloton when 18 guys roll away. And I think we got upwards of um, 20 minute gap before the pressure is on for, you know, the teams that are controlling the race to actually start um, bringing us back. And when that happened um, or when it starts to happen, our, our 18, if we were 18 guys started whittling down. Um, we lost half of them pretty quick. And then I remember it was very, very ferocious where our maybe, maybe we had 10 or 12 guys and then it broke into two groups and I managed to make the front group. Um, and that was the group that ended up making it up and over the cold mirrors. And, and then I was sprinting and, and I ended up with fifth place. So it was like a, uh, like a, a transition stage between the two mountains. So like, was it the massive central region? No, no, no. It's, it's, it's Provence. So it's where Mont Ventoux yeah. Oh, and we were, yep, we were between yep. the Pyrenees and the Alps. Man, yeah. So <laughs> I've got a uh, I've got a tax neo, and throughout this uh, throughout this pandemic, I've been jumping on there quite a bit because because again because I'm a cycling geek, and uh, you know you can load all these really neat courses and stuff like that. And uh, there was one week where I decided to just pretty much do all the stages they had in the Provence region, and. Yeah, that that's some that's some tough riding right there because it's not like they've got, you know, anything that's super long like a Vontu or you know an Alp Duez, but but there's plenty of up and down in in, in that region to to keep you're you moving. You're absolutely so, right, and you you mentioned Massif Central, and I'll tell you Massif Central. Like I've I've heard the the announcers from Tour de France just talk about stages that go through Massif Central is almost as if it's going to be boring, but if you've raced there and you've actually lived and breathed it, it's, it's insane. The roads, the asphalt is not as smooth. So it's kind of got a, it's kind of like a, I don't know how to describe the asphalt. It's just not, it's not, it's not butter smooth. It's a little bit rough and the, and there's never a straight road and it's just constantly up and down. So it's, you, you know, you don't see the Peloton breaking up um, into pieces, but it's very, very fatiguing and it's very, very hard. Yeah. Yeah. And it's usually like hot there. Cause you're not, you know, you're not up in the mountains. And so it's a little bit warmer. Yeah. I mean, that was one of the things and, and you were teammates with Lance, but that was one of the things that he would talk about, you know, he'd say, Hey, these stages in the Massif Central, we can't sleep exactly. on these, it's you know, because you're right. They're just, they're hard. There's a lot of wind there. There's a lot of potential for crosswinds or, you know, crashing or what have you. And so it was kind of one of those where it's like, this is not a day off. I mean, this is a day where we need to pay attention and, and, and it's worth it for us to make the effort to make sure we've got everybody, you know, uh, and we've got everybody in That's good position. Exactly so, right. It's the kind of day that it actually, it breaks down everybody just a little bit. Yeah. 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 Um, Hey, let's talk, let's talk about this, uh, national championship you won. I mean, you were national champion in 99, like you said, so like 98, you know, you had a, you had a great, uh, you know, tour, you, you, and it fin finished fifth on that stage. I'm sure that that was, you know, probably a, a pretty big confidence boost in, in, you know, the belief you had in your abilities. So 99, take us to that national championship. I mean, how did that play out? What was that like? Well, I think it's, it's bittersweet to tell you the truth. I think it's one of the greatest things I've done, but it's also bitter as well because um, winning that race and, and um, you mentioned Chan McRae. So I'll, I'll say that we both share this 
Um, we both okay. won U.S. national championships, but then we were both, um, you could say we were both fired from the team. Okay, okay. <laughs> just, just, just to throw yeah. it out there. So it was something that the team, they didn't want that. They wanted, you know, there were favorites on the team. Um, we were, we were domestiques. We're supposed to do our job to help others win the race. But on the, the day that I won, um, there were, you know, two of us that were working ferociously, very hard, covering the brakes, being where we needed to be. And then, you know, maybe our favorite rider, I don't think was shining that day. So I kind of made the break by default. Um, and then, you know, I ended up winning the, the jersey and taking the jersey, but it wasn't, it wasn't the big celebration on the team. Wow. Okay. So the way that it played out was you were simply just kind of a bookmarker for, okay, we got, we got the guy we're really wanting to win back here. And you ended up being good enough to, I mean, you, you were good enough to, to do the work. <laughs> so there was maybe a little bit of your edge taken off, but you were still strong enough to win the whole Correct. thing. Yeah. Yeah. And this was, uh, and this was back in Philly, right? I mean, how long was that? That, that was a long race. I mean, that one, you know, probably maybe favored you because I mean, wasn't that the longest race that we had here in the States back yes, then? Yes, it is. But and you say favored me, it, I mean, it definitely favored any of us that were racing full-time in Europe. So, you know, um, I'm not going to say every one of my teammates because a few of them would stay state, stateside, but I mean, the majority of us were, you know, were seasoned for that kind of distance. Yeah. And um, so I guess bittersweet because you know, after that, you, you found yourself without a, without a contract. And so let's, let's transition. I mean, at that point, not thinking that that was going to be what would happen. I'm sure at the end of that season, I'm sure after, you know, winning the Jersey, it's like, well, I'm going to, I'm going to have a spot on a team. Um, what was going through your, what was going through your mind then? I mean, did you have, did you take some time to kind of process some things and kind of pick yourself back up or, you know, how did you, how did you handle that? Um, well, I didn't know right away because I did have my contract actually extended for, um, through the year 2000. So I had about another 18 months with the team and I, I was, I was actually just, I was raced and raced hard for the, that 18 months. So they put me to good use, but then there was, the contract wasn't renewed. Um, that's pretty much, that's pretty much the story. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So you had, you kind of didn't have any idea that it was coming. Um, I guess, well, let's see. Well, I wasn't, I was left off the Tour de France team that year. So that was the real sign, the real signal of uh, disapproval. Sure. Sure. Well, but I mean, you ended up, yep stepping into another, another career. And that's currently what you do now. So let, let's talk a little bit about that. I mean, did you, did you go straight away into uh Jemison cycle tours, the, the business that you now own? Did you, I mean, was that a, did you immediately go into that or did you find a job doing something else? I found a job in between. So after my, uh, after my year 2000, so 2000, what would be 2001, 2002, and then part of 2003, during those years, um, I did I sold real estate and I worked for a private um, um, a private um, development company um, that developed high end real estate. Where um, actually Jim Okowitz lives in the development where I was selling. Um, I did that until summer of two thousand and three, and by that time I had built a business plan for Jemison Cycling Tours and launched in uh, September of two thousand three. We did a trip in Girona, Spain, which is where where I you know, lived for the last, um, four years of my pro career. Um, and I've been doing that for 17 years now. Wow. That's awesome. So was it, was, I mean, was it one of those things where you were like, I can't, I'm, I'm not walking out on cycling. I mean, cycling is going to, whatever I'm going to do for a living is going to have cycling in it at, at some point and basically just doing the real estate to kind of get your ducks in a row and, and get to a position where you could do something with cycling, whatever that happened yeah, to I be. Think so, and um, you know, I, I, I think I could have loved and embraced the, the real estate thing and it's in park city, Utah. So we, it's, it's one of the, it's a great place on the planet. There's, you know, more than 300 miles of mountain bike trails, et cetera. So I really thought that was where I was going to be. But I also remember, you know, just the, the pressure of the company not wanting you to, you know, sneak out at lunch or do anything. And 
and I could, I could see mountain bikers while I was, you know, sitting at my desk and, <laughs> and you know, and it just, you know, honestly, I felt, I just, I just, it didn't, I didn't fit in quite, quite, I didn't fit in quite right with that crew. And I missed Europe. I missed European travel. I missed being on the bike. And so developing Jemison cycling tours and going back to Europe is just, it's just, it just fit me and who I am and my lifestyle better. Um, it just may not have been the most, the best financial decision. But, <laughs> but, but just, well, but just but... like cycling and just like pro cycling, it, it, you can't do it for the money. You have to actually love it. Well, that's, that's what I was going to say. I was going to point us right back to that because, uh, you know, you taking on a career as a, you know, professional cyclist, uh, not very, not very lucrative, not very lucrative, sorry. Uh, but at the same time, you know, when, and this is one of the misconceptions, especially here in our country, which, you know, um, the wealthiest nation in the world, that's kind of part of the problem is that we're thinking that financial freedom equals, you know, happiness or satisfaction with our lifestyle. And that's not the case more often than not. So choosing to go for broke and be a professional cyclist and geez, I'm talking about all these awesome experiences that you've had and, and places that you've been that, that a lot of people are never going to go and, you know, now doing what you do for a living where, yeah, I mean, maybe the money's not the best, but um, I mean, tell, tell us a little bit about that. I mean, what is it that, what is it that is, what, what's the, what's the best part of your job? I mean, what is it you, why is it that you love doing what you do right now with Jemison cycle tours? Um, I think, I think the travel is important being in different countries um, every year and multiple countries every year is something, it's something I've been doing for 30 years now. So it's, it's almost as if I, I need to continue that. I, it's like, it's a need for me. Um, but I'll tell you, one of the driving factors are the, are the people and the people, the people, my, the, my guests and clients that I get to meet and have dinner with at the, at the dinner table. And, you know, before we get to the dinner table by, you know, sharing bike rides together. So I think it's just, you know, being with my tribe and, and also showing people um, places in the world that are just, they're phenomenal and just like they're dreamy to be riding your bike in Europe where, where, you know, I'll throw this out there where, where, you know, the car culture actually respects uh, cyclists on the road. So if we, you know, I think, and I think I'll throw this out there too, that, you know, riding your bike in Europe is there's a little more bit of more responsibility and co being cognizant of the flow of traffic. But if you adhere to just a few simple rules, um, then the automobiles actually respect you much more than they do in the United States. Oh man, hundred, hundred percent. It was, um, again, you know, I had my first experience going to Belgium and being out there for a few weeks and, you know, get ready to go for my first bike rides out there on the, on the town, you know, and, and doing some training and me and the few other guys that we went with, we're, we're riding, uh, in the, in the car lane, we're, we're riding in the lanes where the cars are driving. And we, you know, we had somebody who had been there and he, Hey, wh what are you guys doing? And said, we're just riding. No, look, there's a, there's a bike lane right here. You've got to be in this because they can't be in this, but you can't be where they are, right? The cars are, they've got their own designated lane and, and you've got your own designated lane. And I said, oh, okay. You know, and then just talking about things like, oh yeah, you know what happens if those cars park and they're obstructing that bike lane? I mean, that's a, that's a ticket, right? <laughs> like they're going to, they're going to have a ticket on their windshield, you know, and they're going to get fined because they are not allowed to come into that space, which is for cycling only, you know, and it was, uh, it was, it was so awesome to see, you know, and, uh, you know, I, I can only hope that, that here as cycling grows in popularity, that, uh, that we would begin to have some of kind of that same, you know, uh, infrastructure, uh, you know, where, where cycling becomes more safer and a more viable mode of transportation. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. Yeah. I could, we can, but, talk, uh, we can yeah. talk about all kinds of scenarios for an entire podcast. I have a lot of, a lot of examples. Yeah. Well that, yeah, that'd be, that'd be great. So can you tell us, I, I um, when you launched in 03, was there a business like your business that existed in the United States where you're saying, Hey guys, we're all going to take our bikes. We're going to go out there. We're going to go ride our bikes in Europe. I mean, was there something like that already? Or were you kind of one of the first ones to actually make that a thing? Cause now there's, 
you know, now there are probably several of them, right. That, that will do something similar to that. But, you know, I'm thinking back in 03, I don't know that that was necessarily a thing. There were, there were, there was very, very little. So when I started doing, uh, started Jemison cycling tours and now, now I've been doing it for 17 years. There were, a, there were a couple of examples back then. Um, I think Andy Hampson had done, a, had, was doing camps in Italy. Um, Steve Bauer from Canada was doing just a little bit. And I think there were a couple of large companies. I do believe like um, back roads existed, um, but I don't think they went to the races. I think that was, they've, they've kind of grown where they go to high-end races. And then they also do just family um, slow rides, if you will. Um, there might've been a couple of big companies, but yeah, you're right. There wasn't much going on. So I was one of the, you know, one of the early companies. And then since then, you know, there's a lot more now. And then there's been also been a lot who have, you know, started, but then disappeared. Yeah. Well, last question I've got for you before we wrap up here, being from, being from, uh, well, not from Salt Lake, but being from the Utah area, um, how would you say that those climbs out there in Utah compared to the, uh, the climbs in, in Europe? So just taking some of the stuff that, you know, I've seen the tour of Utah takes on some pretty, pretty nasty climbs out there. Uh, how would you say that those compare to the climbing in Europe? Say, uh, you know, a Vontu, Alpe d'Huez type climb yeah. uh, versus, I don't know what the name of the big ones are in Utah, but I know they're out there. Yeah, so, you know, Mont Ventoux climbs um, 5,200 feet. So 5,200 feet from, it's exactly 5,200 feet from Bedouin to the top of uh, Mont Ventoux. And I think, you know, the biggest climbs you're going to find in the tour of Utah are like 3,000 feet. Okay. Okay. So the, ki the, the killer though would be the altitude, correct? Because in, in Utah, you're yes. where, where those climbs are, it's, I mean, are you already above 2000 meters? I don't uh, think almost. So the, the Valley is around 4,500 feet, maybe 5,000 feet. And then you go up from there. So the ski resorts where the bike races are finishing are around seven or seven or 8,000 feet where the, where the bike race would end. So yeah, altitude. And then uh, that is higher than that's higher than the passes in Europe. So it's going to affect the riders a little bit, but you have to remember, you know, and somebody pointed this out to me a long time ago that, you know, when all the riders are doing the same thing, it's, it, 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 it you're on, you're on an equal playing field. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's hundred percent. That's absolutely true. And that, uh, yeah. Game changer. Yeah. You're sucking well, air at altitude, so is the guy next to you. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. And not not to get not to get too deep into that, but then you know, you've got some of these guys nowadays that are showing. You know, they they kind of they kind of laughing at the two thousand meter mark. You know, you've got like a Carapaz and you've got a Bernal, and they're just like two thousand meters or above, and they're just you know because they're from that environment, and and so they're going to Europe and doing these climbs, and you know the two thousand you know, meter mark tends to be the, the point of no return for a lot of guys. And these guys can just keep going. Yeah, Bernal, I think he, yeah, he spent most of his life much higher than that. Yeah. 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 So it's, uh, you know, they've got, they've got some physiological adaptation that, uh, that some of the other guys haven't yeah, been able to, you know, able I, to for my entire career, I spent my life, my house is at 8,000 feet. Yeah. So man, let, let, Shoot. Okay. So a lot of your, I, and that's the thing. Cause you, yeah, you mentioned you would stay in Utah and like a lot of your mileage came at pretty high yeah. altitude. Wow. Yeah. That makes it even more impressive, man, that you're, you're at altitude doing that kind of volume. Um, cause that obviously that's a lot different of a stress on your body. Yep. <laughs> well, yeah. So, I mean, I, I spent approximately what well, was just probably just shy of six months a year at altitude. And most of the high volume, though, would be, you know, when I left, when I went down to lower altitude or spent time in Europe. Um, but yeah, so that, but yeah, um, a lot of my awesome. altitude, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I want to give you an opportunity to, uh, you know, tell us a little bit more about your business if you want to do that and uh, tell us where we can find you and get some more information about you for anybody who's interested. So give you an opportunity to go ahead and do All that. Right. So, um, yeah, Jemison Cycling Tours, and you can find me at jemisoncycling.com 
or do any Google search with my name, Marty Jemison, and um, you can find email and phone phone number. And at this point, I've done over 200, uh, 200 trips in Europe. And, you know, we do anything. We're actually focusing more on small groups, which has been a lot of fun. So just groups of guys or families or whomever that get together and do trips in France, Italy, Spain, uh, predominantly Western Europe, um, sometimes focused on uh, races like the Tour de France, but then also just the um, places like the Alps, the Pyrenees, places where the races do happen. And then also just away from races where, you know, more food and culture might be uh, the emphasis. So in the wine regions, et cetera. Um, but all of the, the great places in Europe and the places that you want and dream to ride your bike. Yeah. Awesome. Marty, I'm sorry. I do have one more question. I usually ask my guests, um, if we've got some young people listening here that are aspiring to, you know, be professionals and, and, you know, perform at the level that you did since you've been there, what's some advice that you would give them that you feel would help them to, you know, continue to chase that, that goal, that dream? Boy, it's tough. Um, the, the, the advice part is tough. I think you first, you have to know that you want it. I think maybe you have to look at those, you know, look what's happening in the current environment and, and those that are around you and you need to, you know, you need to analyze that and then try and find a way to do it differently and, and rise above that and do it. You know, you may have to commit more time or effort or go somewhere. You may have to transplant yourself somewhere and don't be afraid to try different things. And, um, it's not easy to figure it out, but you know, in my case, you know, I, I tried, I looked at the U S national team route. I'd been to the training center and I didn't see a way to get on the national team early on. Um, and I just, I just leapfrogged them and went to France on my own and started, I just immersed myself in the racing culture in Europe and it worked out for me. Yeah. Yeah. That's great point because, uh, you know, there's more than one way to get there. Right. And, um, you know, although USA cycling is a great Avenue and they do have, you know, the, the infrastructure that we were talking about and so on and so forth, they have the contacts and all those kinds of things. That is not the only way, right? There are several other ways. Uh, you know, what I like to say is, Hey, you know what? There's folks out there that get paid money. If you're good enough, they'll find you, right? Like if you've got the talent, it doesn't matter where you came from. If you can ride a bike fast, um, then, you know, you, you get to the, you get to the right places and you'll have, you'll have a job. So, um, you know, but, uh, well, Marty, thank you so much for being on the podcast and giving us some of your time. Uh, just really been a pleasure to get to know you better and, and walk us through, you know, uh, your experiences, which, uh, which were absolutely fantastic. You're welcome. It was, a, it was a pleasure.